0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you
1: want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother Dagan. No fate, Moriarty Dagan. <laughs> <laughs> get to the chopper get to the chopper it's dude, not have a you, tumor dude it really brought me back to Ron and Fez which was a show you and I loved because, and, and Opie and Anthony because they used to do the Arnold Schwarzenegger soundboard when they would prank call people and half of this movie is on that like I don't even think I realized until I was watching I was dying laughing because like things he would just say like i computer awesome. or whatever like, you know, like that kind of, kind of random ass <laughs> shit Ron and Fez was the best Oh the God. absolute I, best they're kind of a mistake i don't think a lot of people today know them um, no but they were a uh they were like a radio duo in the 90s and probably into the two- 2000s in the new york area and they were kind yeah. of like were they proteges of opie and anthony i don't really know exactly what, what yeah i feel like was. they
2: kind of spun off from opie and anthony mm-hmm. right like whether they someone out there will know but whether they did a segment or whether it was something that was kind of um you know came from was born out of opie and anthony and then that you know became their own radio show, but hilarious. And I felt like they were the accessible duo because Opie and Anthony were so big. Like You could call in to Ron and Fez, and I don't know if that's because they had a later in the day slash evening time. Were, you, around, on, you, were, on,
1: were you on with them at all? I, did,
2: I was, yeah, probably yeah. twice. You know, you could call in and have a good shot of getting on the air if you had something funny to say or something interesting to ask. And yeah, I I feel like... I feel like one of them is still involved at least in radio slash podcasting. It's something, it's something definitely worth looking into because they had something special. Those two, they yeah, had a tandem that really worked.
1: Those two shows loved their soundboards and the Arnold, they had like legendary Arnold soundboards. That was that they the would day use of soundboards. To, like, prank. Yeah. They pranked the shit out of people with this. Like, I'm a, you know, like for all stuff from kindergarten cop and all of this, it's, it's just, it was so funny. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but it, it, yeah, dude, I, I um it's funny because I don't know if people it's a Long Island thing very much so, not anymore, I'm sure, but the WOW stickers. Can yeah. you imagine can you imagine yeah. that being a thing today? That would never, ever, 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 <laughs> ever be a thing today. But only 15, 20, 25 years ago, the one of the biggest radio shows in the world in the tri state area anyway, had a, had whip it out Wednesdays, whip them out <laughs> Wednesdays. And you had you had the WWW stickers on like everyone's cars. It was insane. Oh, people were rocking like one in three cars had this yeah, yeah. at yeah. least like that was the ratio.
2: Whip them that way. This was 20 years ago. <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, yeah, maybe. Like a- yeah. 20 ish years ago. Yeah. I mean, h- how <laughs> how much have things
1: changed in two decades? It's so funny. Yeah. Flashing their breasts to drivers with a wow sticker on their car. <laughs> and then you like <laughs> I- win something create absolutely insanity, absolute insanity <laughs> but that was a really wonderful show why were we talking about this i don't even remember but soundboard we,
2: terminator Stop, connected terminator, and right fez, that's right
1: yeah anti. okay that's right okay yeah, yeah, it was yeah, all good. the domino i do have a very specific memory of you and i listening to ron and fez and i brought it up in the past i don't know if you remember it but we were driving somewhere but they were talking about o'clock Yes. Like what that means. And they were, I was dying listening to this. I like wish I, it's probably some obscure piece of audio that does not exist anywhere, but I wish I could find it where they were arguing over like what O clock meant. Did it mean uh, of the clock on the clock? On the clock. They, they were, they were like, it was just, and people were calling in. It was hysterical. If like people were calling in, like with, and this was kind of like, this was in the late nineties. So it wasn't like people were really on the internet looking or anything like they were coming in with their earnest ass, you know, <laughs> Reflections of what they think "o'clock" meant, and it was just great. So
2: that's an important point. That's I think conversation was better back then on radio slash coming into the podcast era because it really was all genuine, authentic reflections and knowledge and bad knowledge because you couldn't you couldn't really look it up. It wasn't. It was we were just starting to be able to reference the internet for for answers, right? So it was genuine, like arguments over yeah. these things. It was awesome. Because you couldn't prove it out.
1: Right. Exactly. You know? Yeah. It was It was so funny. <laughs> I just remember that so well. I don't know why I remember that because I just think it was <laughs> such a funny skit or such a funny little thing they did. But Dave, today's topic is Terminator 2. But before we get into it, uh, I was curious if you had anything that you wanted to discuss in earnest. You know
2: what? I was, I was just thinking about this this morning as I worked. And this was an interesting thing that happened to me. So I recently watched about a week ago. I watched Paul Thomas Anderson's movie Licorice Pizza.
1: Have you seen it yet, Kyle? No, I, I, I got a bunch of ads for it, but I have not seen it. I have not it's seen It's
2: really, it, yeah. it, you know, PTA's latest, one of my favorite directors. I mean, one of the great directors of the modern age, right? Sitting here in 2022. And I had been putting off watching it. And I was just starting to think of. PTA in general and his body of work, like his films. So you have Magnolia, right? Boogie Nights, There Will Be Blood, The Master, Punch Drunk Love, all these wonderful movies. Some of my favorite films, but there's definitely a clear, there's a formula in a lot of his films. I love PTA. I love Paul Thomas Anderson because he always brings something different to the table. He's He's a lot like Scorsese in that regard. Like he could just—it seems like he's one of those directors that could do anything. Maybe I would put Tarantino in that camp as well. But and of course, a clear style. But there's something to his films, right? There's an uneasiness. You know, there's going to be a point where there's going to be—it's going to be unpleasant or melancholy. It's going to get awkward. It's going to get upsetting. Especially think about films like Magnolia. There will be blood, punch drunk love. Definitely, you feel for Adam Sandler's character. One of my favorite movies of all time, by the way. But and I love them, but you have to almost kind of steal your, steal yourself to watch these films. You gotta. And I was kind of thinking, and I realized going in, like I had this inherent bias about his movies, and like I felt like, okay, I have to get my courage up to watch this film because, and I have to be in a certain mindset to be able to endure it because I know. I think it's going to get like this. Like I have to be emotionally ready right. to weather the storm. And I go in, I watch this movie. I, I think it's going to be really interesting. The late Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, I believe his name is Michael, but, don't, but correct me if I'm wrong. His film debut, he's amazing, just like his dad. And I go in and I watch this, this movie and it's basically very pleasant and upbeat. And it ends that way. And I'm waiting for the, sh- the other shoe to fall. I'm right. waiting for it to get upsetting. I'm waiting for it to kind of go down into that zone. And it really doesn't. It kind of ends on an upbeat, just a story about young love. And I realize, like, wow, like you really went in with a prejudice against. It's amazing how a director or a creator could do that to us. And then kind of flip it on a dime. And I, I really read it like Paul Thomas Anderson getting older. Because I I I think and don't, you know, you know, don't this isn't gospel. I don't really I don't know Paul Thomas Anderson, although I'd love to sit down and talk to him, but I read this as somebody who's softening. Maybe the angst is getting lifted a little bit, right? So but a really a great movie. So the lesson is here. If you guys are feeling the same way about this film and you kind of felt like, oh man, I don't know, I have to kind of center myself and get ready for a night of magnolia for instance so just just kind of a light watch and really like two debut actors performances that are awesome and it makes me also wonder where we're going from here like is he going to return to the well and go back to there will be blood or is you know from now you know is it going to cross over into some kind of rated g disney thing it's fun it's interesting to see kind of what a creator will do next, especially someone who is as sought after as uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. So that was. Uh, I was just thinking about that because I was listening to some interviews with him this morning, and even listening to him now talk about film. Right? He has. He seems a little more relaxed, uh, a little more affable. Maybe I don't know. I, he. It's just. It's interesting how to watch a creator change someone you don't know, but you've been kind of sitting by and watching their work for the better part of three decades. And how that kind yeah. of evolves.
1: Yeah, I don't think I think the last movie of his I saw was was there will be blood. Of course, Magnolia, mm. Boogie Nights. Good movie. But yeah, I don't think I've, I don't think he even has a vibe for me because I don't I just don't think I've interacted enough with his stuff. Right. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah but, yeah. but clearly there is a, a vibe with the movies I have seen now that I that I think about it, I guess, more. more. Specifically. Yeah, that
2: emotional impact, you know, like, Dark you know, this stuff is going to be riveting and you're going <laughs> to come away feeling Something and it's going to be memorable. And this was too, just in a different way. You know what this movie was? Licorice Pizza. It was an because I think it took place in 1972, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe an like interesting time. Yeah. yeah, I love it. And it was beautiful and Southern California, and it yeah. felt like Southern California must have felt like and looked like, and you could almost like feel the heat, summertime, the wood paneling, and the avocado, and the style of Mad car. Men did like, that
1: off, off, like oh, too. One 60s. of the best. Yeah. No doubt to
2: do that and to do that for television. Oh, don't don't even talk to me about Mad Men. Oh, the best, the best.
1: Stop. Stop yeah. it. Stop it. <laughs> you stop. What, what um, about you, my friend? What's going on with your summer? Uh, summer's good. Um, I'm just really tired and anxious. I don't know. I, I said that a few like I just am kind of just going through the motions, getting work done, trying to clear my plate. Yeah, so that I can have like a little bit of comfort. But I thought you'd find this funny because you know, the old saying like your dog ate my, or, the dog ate my homework. I always thought that this was a funny thing. Like this would be a thing in a cartoon or in a book or whatever. And it's like, the dog ate my homework. And you know, the teacher would not believe it. And the kids would be laughing or whatever. And I always wondered, cause we didn't grow up with dogs. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Your dog ate your homework. But then I, um I woke up today and uh, my, my notebook, I don't know if this is coming through for you. Cause we, we have, it's just for my, that. my, my Terminator notes. Um, <laughs> Which one did this? Uh, so this was treble, no doubt. Now, i sleep in i didn't get up until like twelve thirty today i don't know what that was all about but oh my goodness but micah gets up way earlier and she gets up with the dogs and stuff and sometimes i hear her screaming at the do- at treble like yelling at treble because treble's insane and treble's like eaten like half of my baseboards away and like a, a half of like my side table next to my dad and just we're, we're doing our best with her she's just she's she's fucking insane she's awesome <laughs> And uh, Boston's are just generally insane. And Rush is like totally calm by her standards. Like she just bum rushes Rush, like just and like jumps on him and just destroys him. (laughs) And he just kind of sits there and hangs out. But uh, yeah, so this was just down there and she did this. And I hear um, sometimes Micah yelling, you know, at her like, wow, don't don't do this. Don't do that. And so I was thinking I I heard it in kind of my sleep state. And I remember being like, oh, I wonder what what it is. And then I I walked downstairs and it ended up being my notebook for my uh for my notes so i'm working with um God. with limited notes here for terminator but we'll do the best <laughs> we can we'll, we'll do the best <laughs> we can do how old you, is treble now she'll be a year old next week actually she she has the same birthday as micah they're, they're both born on july 17th oh so, that's so funny which was a funny coincidence but yeah so, so you she'll got be another
2: year. six months to a year of puppy
1: business mm-hmm. and then it should calm down definitely by most it, by most rights right and she tries to like because they're both our dogs, but Treble's more like hers. You know, Rush is more like mine. You know, yep. like I walk Rush at night, and like she walks Treble, and like that. Kind. And uh, I, she always tries to remind me when I when I bitch. She's like, "Well, Rush was insane too, and Rush is like twice as big. So oh, yes. Rush ate an entire windowsill away, like an entire windowsill away, <laughs> just the entire thing. This. Yeah, so funny in our one of our guest rooms. So, but I did want to bring up really quickly because I wanted to ask you about this. Like, yeah, why is it? This is a thing for me. I don't know if it's a thing for you. I know it's a thing for other people. Certainly people make fun of white people for this kind of stuff. But Uh-oh. I can't talk to the dogs in a normal voice. It's very hard for me to do. I have a whole vocabulary and like intonation with them that I don't use with anyone else. It's like a whole and I just walk in and I, what I like doing is like saying outrageous things that they wouldn't have any idea. Of. <laughs> like I'll walk into the room and I'll just be sitting there. And I'll be like, what the hell is going on in here? You know, like, like, like You know, like look at them and be like. And I always say, I'm just tired of the nonsense. When I walk when I walk around the house, and like I just look straight at them. They have no idea what I'm saying. And I was wondering, do you have do you have a thing like that too? Where I have like a whole. I just can't talk to them normally. I have to talk to them in some voice. I have to talk say stupid shit to them, and like be be foolish with them. I cannot interact with them without being that way for some reason. That's kind of, that's, yeah.
2: I think that's a dog, a dog owner, a pet owner, but I would say specifically dog owner thing, right? I th- I think I'm always mortified when I think of the idea of like, wow, if someone heard me talking to Kiki the way I do, for me, it's more like baby talk and not just the intonation or the change of voice, but the things that I say are so stupid you know, like let's go walk you outside. We're gonna do peepees and the poop, peepees and the, the poopies. Like this is a, like it's fucking crazy. Like I, I should even go on because it's so embarrassing. But that's really more what it is, and I think it's like it's like ba- a baby, right? It's like they're so cute that they elicit you acting nonsensically, right? It's it's just like you don't talk. It's not a normal thing. But I do think it's you kind of planted a seed in my head because. I do think talking to the dog in a regular way would be just as funny, because they can't—they really understand attitude. I think and emotion, like inflection, volume—that's how they know if you're being loving or if they're in trouble. And you know, I'm sure dogs, especially, are smart enough to start to understand what words mean. Even though I still don't think Kiki knows any of our names, you know, which is so crazy. I'm like, go get Lilia, and she'll run outside, but Lilia is standing next to her. You know, so it's like what she she hearing, think, it's, ah. Ah. she's hearing like, ah. you know, I think <laughs> yeah, that's the way it is, like, right? right. And, and so it just induces excitement.
1: It's like I'm Kramer jump going to the bar now, yeah, because
2: I heard this word. But I think it's more, you know, they really seem to respond to emotion and attitude more, obviously. But I, I do think that's kind of funny. What you do is just kind of talking to them like you're talking to any other kind of adult, because they're so. I, and I don't, you know, dogs, and they say cats are really smart too. Dogs obviously aren't stupid, but I just think it's a simplicity. Just think of a dog's life. It's all about comfort, hot, cold. Am I eating? Did I get enough to eat? Am I getting enough affection? That's pretty much it. They don't have to worry about careers, the weather, bills. You know what I mean? Like they, Their life is so much more simple, so I think it's relegated to like a simpler understanding. You know, so, but that's it, but that's interesting. I always think, like, oh my God, if somebody recorded me on, on the sly of me talking to Kiki, that I'd be, that would be the most embarrassing thing I could probably think of. But I can't <laughs> stop. You're aware of it, but you just keep doing it. It's a sickness.
1: <laughs> that no, we all I, have. I, I, do, I do it in front of everyone. So, like, anyone that's here, I'll do it in front of them. Like, what?
2: What's going <laughs> See, on? You're brave. I don't know if I, what's going on, that?
1: my friends? What's going on, <laughs> what's going on here? But, yeah, it is interesting. We it'll be interesting for you to meet the them and and figure out their dynamic because uh, Treby is um well I call I call her her nickname is for me from me is party girl because she is always down to like do whatever like, and she's she's insane she she loves the ball she'll do anything for the ball she'll do anything for it. <laughs> And she loves sliding around like she's figured out she has like she's so small that her paws like have hair on the bottom of them. We try to shape it down, but she oh, just slides still around. She slides around. She's very dainty, but she's yeah, yeah, like yeah. a total wrecking ball. She'll she well, I, I throw the ball down one of the hallways and she we have hardwood and she just runs and then halfway down, she'll be running full speed halfway down. She stops running and like slides the rest of the way <laughs> and like smashes into the wall. She loves it. And Rush is just sitting there like looking at her like you're absolutely fucking nuts. <laughs> Makes Rush look calm, right? yeah, totally. And what—that's what's funny—is that Rush is huge compared to her. He's thirty yeah, pounds. Yeah. He's huge for a Boston Terrier, and she's small. She's too small for a Boston Terrier. Like neither. She'll of them, get a
2: little bigger though. she no. I
1: think she's. She's done. I think this is about it, dude. She's tiny. Yeah. Oh. You know, she's she's a little lady. So as I like to tell her.
0: <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit angie.com that's a n g i c o m All right, my friend. Well, let's talk about a different topic.
1: let cute. go. Terminator Decidedly 2. Decidedly less cute. Now, uh, yeah, I wanted to do Terminator 2 pretty quickly because we just did Terminator recently. And the original 1984 Terminator, Terminator 2 of course came to theaters, theaters, Judgment Day in 1991. But I wanted to follow it up because we got so many letters about what when we when we did that episode about connecting it to T2 and what we thought about T2 and the change in T2 and kind of that alien to aliens type feel. Uh, Maybe even that Zelda to Zelda 2 or that Mario to Mario 2 type feel. It felt like it was going to be something different. And so people I was eager to kind of like satiate that. And because I haven't seen Terminator 2 in a long time, although I don't know that I need to see it. I think everyone saw this movie eight million times i don't know how many times you could possibly see terminator <laughs> two, but it was still fun to see and i don't know i'm gonna reserve what i have to say i want to kick it over to you first though and just see what did you think of the of the experience of watching it again and um what are your high-end thoughts right now
2: i really enjoyed watching i watched it twice all the way through didn't realize or didn't remember that it's such a long movie what is it like 215 217 something like yeah, that two, yeah 217 i think long flick And wanted to watch it twice just so I absorbed everything. And just also kind of slash enjoying Arnold's charisma, which I think comes in spades in this film. But I'm going to tell you, Kyle, at the risk of losing some nerd cred, I'll commit a cardinal sin here. I have to admit, I don't know that I saw this movie all the way through back in its heyday. Now, I don't remember seeing it mm -hmm. in the theater. I don't remember if I did or if I didn't, which is kind of weird because I usually remember that. But... The fact of the matter is, back in 91, 92, this film was everywhere. The film, the imagery, the iconic nature of it. We got video games, the 8-bit consoles, the 16-bit consoles, the arcades. Every time you went into a mall, the merch, the t-shirts, the toys, the Guns N' Roses music video was playing on repeat on MTV. <laughs> I feel like they played it every two videos. Yeah. I mean, that, and, you know, and they, uh, along with that, the imagery of the motorcycle and the chase in the calif- in the Los Angeles drainage ditch, and the box of roses with the shotgun, like, and of course, the metallic endoskeleton with the red eyes. Hasta la vista, Arnold. baby. Hasta la vista, baby. Like the one liners, like it was everywhere. So, I feel like even if you didn't see this movie back in the day, you felt like you knew it so well, but in watching it again, I say this because there, there's specific sequences. There's whole parts of this movie that I didn't remember, which you could also chalk up to old age, but I don't know that I had seen this movie from back to front from A to Z before watching it for the, for the podcast. So it was nice to go in and get, you know, the, the entire, the entire thing in one sitting. And uh, it's so so good, man. I mean, really the other thing that I kind of came away with with watching the film was I do feel like this film is maybe the bridge, maybe the one movie that connects the 80s and the 90s because I feel like it feels like this era felt like, if that makes sense. It really feels like that proper bridge, that liaison between decades. And I feel like there's a lot of 80s film in this movie and of course you have the cg the silicon graphics which was very cutting edge and makes it you know brings it into the 90s but i feel like it's a proper melding of the two decades and i really walked away with a nostalgia for 1991 i mean this was the summer between my junior and senior years of high school when this came out in july july 3rd right so I really kind it really brought me back, like a lot of our topics do. But it was nice to go back to the early '90s, which uh, is not an era that we're. Oh, you know, we we float around from mm-hmm. '70s, '80s, '90s, the aughts. So it was nice to be back in that. Uh, it was nice to be back at seventeen-year-old Dagan.
1: Yeah, totally. I was going to say this. This movie came out, I believe, when I was going into second grade. So, so it was, so it was one of those movies because the Guns N' Roses music video is a, a good thing to mention because we all loved MTV. I mean, I was, I was attached to MTV. I loved MTV and VH1 and that you kind of were exposed as a younger person. I wasn't going to the theater to see this. No one was bringing me to see it. I didn't ask to go see it, but that you were exposed to the kind of the, the, the arm, the mechanical arm, the music, the hasta la vista baby. And like you said, the the shotgun and all all the rest, and the cop running like crazy. Oh my and,
2: god, the iconic run, which is
1: an awesome shot. I mean, it is a great shot. So it is it is very much of this. It's like this multimedia spectacle from a time when I don't think you could even do something like that anymore. Because I don't I don't think there's not even a demand for that level of marketing anymore. Like you can't possibly get like think about Star Wars. Like that was about as big as it was going to get, and that wasn't even I don't think as much as Terminator Two. Head. Was in the in the zeitgeist at the time, like you couldn't no, avoid really. it. So I totally agree with you. What's funny, I just found them and the, I should have gotten them um, to show in the garage. Is I have two Terminator two toys because that Christmas in two, in 1991, I just asked for Terminator toys for some reason, and I got oh shit, I got like the cop and Arnold with the like the uh, shells on his chest, and their chests like pop off, and they both turn into like their Terminator versions or whatever. Oh, it's, I it's, don't it's,
2: remember those.
1: Yeah, yeah, so I just had, and I remember I used to just keep them in my Lego or in my Lego bin. Because like that, I just had these two random figures that I don't know why. In hindsight, I'm like, man, you should have asked for more GI Joes. That was very stupid to to, to do that. (laughs) That's awesome, though. But I think I did that before I even saw the movie. But this movie, like many others, was an HBO Showtime Cinemax special. I mean, I by the time 1995 rolled around, I maybe saw this movie 50 times. I mean, I I don't in drips and drabs. Like because it's like you said, there are parts where I'm like, I don't remember this so well. There are parts where. I, like I, like you said that the the, uh, the L.A. Aqueducts scene is just a famous scene, and so it is funny to like visit it again and and uh, and all that. But here's what I want to say that might be a little controversial, mm. and we'll get into it. I, I think a little bit more, and I, I don't want to get into it too deeply yet. But is I think the first one's better. Like, I think the first one's a better movie, and I think the same thing about Alien and Aliens. I, I just. I don't know. Like, I, there's something about this movie that feels forced. We have. Arnold Schwarzenegger is the good guy now. Now, I, I, I we're going to get into that because that's part of like what people didn't know going into the movie, apparently, which is fun to think about. But um, well, let's get into it with that, with that, actually Trevor. B. Yeah, wrote yeah. In and said, I was 13 when I saw this movie in the theater. Back then, there was no Internet to spoil the story. I'm also pretty sure the original trailer just advertised that there were just that there were two Terminators, I went into the movie thinking Arnold was the bad guy as he was in the first one. It wasn't until the scene in the hallway in the back of the mall, we learned Arnold was the good guy. Curious if either of you experienced this movie that way the first time you saw it. No, in fact, it was, it was confusing in reverse because in going back to T1, I had to kind of remember, oh yeah, he's like he was the bad guy in Terminator. And they wrote this movie to somehow make him the good guy. It seems like a very keen... It's a movie that deserves to exist. There's no doubt about it that it's a great movie. I like the movie a lot. But it's definitely, from my point of view, a situation where you have Arnold in 1984, then you have Arnold in 1991. You got to get him back into this movie. He is the Terminator, even though Linda Hamilton's so great. There is no Terminator without Arnold. How can you make him a palatable part of a sequel and make him the good guy and make him not even kill anyone, really, or kill very few people? And that's so to me, I couldn't help but see that transparently, but. Do you remember that being like the big secret? It seems like it's an almost Empire Strikes Back type secret where you don't really know the big twist, which is that he's he's actually the good guy.
2: Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember the reveal or how it played out as a surprise or if I was already aware, but I do. I could I could I could tell you I do like the idea of kind of flipping it and making Arnold the good guy in the second Version, rather than sort of that model of Michael Myers always being the bad guy, or the return of Jason Voorhees, or Freddy, or the aliens, right? The um, the aliens and Alien, and I also love the your your um comparison, Kyle, between Terminator and T two and Alien and Aliens, because it does feel very similar. The only real difference is that the Alien franchise had two different directors for the two different iterations, mm. whereas it's James Cameron for both Terminator films. But it does feel very similar. And I wasn't thinking of that, where the first movie, the first offering is darker, grittier, maybe a little bit slower paced. And the second version is the first version on blast, right? Bigger budget, more action, more popcorny. A little more fun, a little more fast paced. So the, those two movies, those two fr- that franchise kind of played out the same way, at least over the first two offerings, which is really interesting. But I, I kind of like Arnold being the good guy in this one. My only thing, and I had to watch it twice to even get this, was how did this happen? And basically, they just dismiss it in one sentence to say you are a reprogrammed Terminator you know we reprogrammed you and set and dispatched you as the savior this time rather than the person who's going after rather than the hunter you're the protector this time and they basically say it in one sentence and that's the, that's the entire story which is fine i could understand that the other thing that i do find interesting though is that they didn't tease it out longer in the movie because you could really go into this film having not been spoiled by the music video or the trailers or whatever and say like Which one is which? Because it's interesting. The Robert Patrick character, the T-1000, has a very kind of affable look to him. He looks like he could be like a kindly straight-laced police officer, right? Polite and... He's not as big. He's not as um, physically imposing as Arnold and stuff like that. So you could have really teased out who was who there longer in the movie. They do it a little bit. They do it to some degree. I mean, when you meet Arnold, he's he's basically terrorizing a bunch of bikers in a bar right. and stuff like that. So it is a little dubious at first. But I really felt like you could have played with that a little deeper into the movie to know who was coming in, who was coming in peace, and who was coming to. Wreak havoc. That makes sense.
1: It does make sense, and I'm trying to make I'm trying to make sense of my notes here. <laughs> <laughs> That's freaking odd. But I think what I said it hasn't w-
2: happened in four years.
1: Yeah, I, I usually am better about keeping my notes away from them. But yeah, it's uh, what did I say here? Oh, yeah, the, the the replication, like you said, of the biker stuff in the beginning, I, I liked kind of hitting the, the same beats as this as the original movie. I thought that that was nice. However, I wanted to ask you this one thing, which was mm. because the the CG is so much better right in this film. We'll talk about some poor effects, but uh, that someone wrote in about. But and I know that they wanted to flex it immediately. And I love that they did. They just get crazy with it. They show a Terminator in the very beginning. Because I think they were kind of haunted by the way the Terminator looked in the first movie and some of the the, the <laughs> shitty, you know, the more low budget stuff. And this, of course, was a much higher budget, although not a mega budget movie, but it was a higher budget movie. And you wanted to, you knew they wanted to flex that and show that off. But you Definitely. know what? I couldn't help but think they was the same <laughs> strand that I was talking about in the original Terminator conversation. They never need to show the future. I do not know why they keep showing it. They do not need to show it. Imagine how much cooler all of this would have been if you never see anything but the present day and all the shit coming and going from right. it. and right. you so there's no real evidence like you have no idea because that's what i couldn't get away from i'm like damn dude it's so annoying that you guys want to show this for no reason it would be so cool if there was just this woman linda hamilton's character You know, she has a son with someone from the future. We have we think he's from the future. He claims he's from the future. All this shit happens in the first movie that seems to suggest he's telling the truth. But you never really know. And then they're going through their lives. Maybe she is in the mental institution, all this kind of stuff. He's kind of fostered out. But this cool idea that she's raising him and he's kind of believing it, but not really believing it. And we and then evidence comes back into their lives that suggests that it's real again. But you never again really know. Right. Right. And because you don't see any of the context. Does that resonate with you? Because I feel like someone should have went to them and been like, that would have made both of these movies so much better if you never showed that shit, because that's the jankiest and stupidest shit in the first one. And in the second one, you wouldn't even, there would have been no expectation that we would have ever even seen that. And you could have put all that money instead of putting them in the hunter killers and stuff like that. You could have put them Mm. into making the Terminators even better looking than they already are. And it looks fucking awesome. I think this movie holds up just a just a bar below Jurassic Park, I think, in terms of What it like the way it holds up for the most part. Absolutely. I agree with you. Yeah. Does that resonate with you at all? This idea that, like, they why do they feel like they need to show that? What does it add?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I'm always, first of all, all for leaving more to the imagination. And because what you don't know, what you don't see, or what you don't have any picture of is always more horrifying and terrifying of what you could conjure in your imagination. I think. It's due to a few things. I think there was probably some flop sweat there in saying like, okay, things like Star Wars, you have all this bitching stuff. You have outer space scenes and dogfights in space and spacecraft and laser guns and lightsabers. And you have all this crazy, these this visual stuff and a visual feast. And not having that is not... You know, people aren't ready to not have that. If they want to have something like that, they'll read a book, for instance, right? And I think it's also some parts we have to remember. James Cameron comes from a visual design, industrial design, illustration background. And he designed the Terminator endoskeleton initially. He designed the hunter killers and what the futuristic or post-apocalyptic world looked like and stuff. So, and the resistance fighters and the tech they use. So I think a lot of it, is just sort of that sort of thing too, where it's like it kind of comes all from his vision, this one guy's vision. And I think that's just who he is. I mean, look at Avatar, right? I mean, Avatar is that in droves now. But I think you can even see the beginnings of that in these earlier projects like the like Aliens, The Abyss, and the first couple of Terminator films where it's like a lot of it is beholden to this man's visual creations and i don't know if he had the you know the restraint to keep those things out of there i think he he really wanted to show them i think that's part of his vision and i think that's part of uh maybe his weakness as a filmmaker a little bit too and we'll talk about i could probably talk about a couple of more things too although i think he's a, a wonderful visionary he definitely there's there's weak uh chinks in the armor for sure
1: yeah yeah i, I- it's hard for me to know if the the imagery of the hunter killer and the imagery of the Terminator, as we see it, and all of that, and that futuristic Judgment Day war, if that's really part of the essential makeup of what made Terminator popular. I just don't think mm. so. Mm. I don't think so. I mean, I, I maybe see the way I look at it is there's so much density in Terminator's story that it 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 demands a TV show that, which is why it's such a shame that the Sarah Connor Chronicles didn't really catch on. Because the events of Terminator 2 could be their own its own show uh, in terms of the the interaction between all these characters and them going. It happens very quickly, which I think is cool. It happens in a brief enough time where they're all wearing basically the same clothes the entire time. But yeah, it's I just think about it from the, the point of view of the characters and the people. It's almost like Jesus in the New Testament when he would go around and people would have this proof in front of them, like there would be a group of people that would see him raise Lazarus right and then so they would go and they'd be like holy shit like they saw with their own eyes and then that would kind of circle out and that would become real and there's just something from the viewer's point of view where I feel like that would be a kind of cool thing in Terminator where we know at the end that some crazy shit happens and like 20 cops die and we know that they this little microchip and this arm survive that that this company has access to now and all this kind of stuff so there's evidence like there's little pieces of evidence that it's real but we just don't know any more than that. I think that would be so tantalizing.
2: Yeah, like, I agree it'd, with you. It'd Kyle.
1: Be so, and, and it's like, what? Like these fucking crazy ass people coming into from the future and trying to kill this kid. And it would be cool to just be like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, and, and just going with that and Absolutely. never really, never really showing it. I don't know. It it's image. smarter
2: filmmaking. Show, don't tell. And also it would play better into successful, really effective reveals later on. Like when you finally see the endoskeleton shed and the human skin and the biological stuff sh- sort of melts off, you see what it looks like. Instead of just showing everything in the beginning of what these things look like and what they act like and how terif- terrifying they are, reveal that later in the film. The same thing goes for the first movie too. Do you really need that stuff? Do you really need that setup? You know that there's a futuristic world where the h- remaining humans form a resistance and fight this robotic menace that's taking over the
1: earth. That's, it's enough to know that. Let's talk about some of the characters. Let's start with Arnold, of course.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The chosen one wrote in and said, I know now why you cry, Dagan, but it's something I can never do. <laughs> can we talk about how amazing Arnold is in this film? It's so incredibly difficult to play robotic and at the same time show emotional progression, but somehow Arnold is able to pull it off flawlessly. I'm going to say the same thing about Arnold Schwarzenegger that I said in the, in the first one, which is that there's just something about him. There's something very charming about him. He, can, really is. he just can get away with anything. He's obviously not a good actor. I mean, I just think that's pretty manifest. A lot of it comes from the accent, and but that's who he is. Yes. Really, Micah was saying, like, you're this perfect machine, but they gave you a German accent. Like, <laughs> why would they do that? Why would not they like make you speak English flawlessly? But nonetheless, it's there's something he's just got this very unique, once in a generation, almost sly stallone like, although Sylvester Stallone's a legitimate actor. But that same thing where there's like that's a charm to him because we associate him with these certain characters. And so he just works like, well, I'll always associate Slice Sloan with with Rocky. And so who who can't love that character who doesn't love that story, you know, and Arnold's got like the totally different sort of vibe where he's the bodybuilder and he's kind of finding his way into acting and he's Conan and he's all these different things. But I buy it. So even though it doesn't make sense, even though some some cuts you listen to like there's a i wish i remember what it was there was something where he says something back to john and he's like oh yeah you know like some some like horrible <laughs> cut and i just think about them editing this shit together and trying to find the best cuts of that all was of
2: probably the best they had right.
1: and right? so what do you think of arnold's performance in terminator 2
2: i mean Yeah. I mean, it really does play into his charisma. And in just watching and doing the show on Terminator and now T2 and getting the opportunity, because I never really pay attention to Arnold Schwarzenegger. We know his body of work. We know he's a giant, massive movie star and an ex-governor and all of this, but I never really went in for paying attention to any of his exploits. So going in and watching not only the movies, but watching his interviews and stuff, he has a real charisma to him. He really, you could see him being a politician. He has that, he doesn't have the intelligence of, let's say, Dwayne Johnson, a more modern movie star and a contemporary, but
1: yeah, it's a good he comparison has, actually.
2: yeah, he has a great, but he has a really great charisma and he always seems to know what to say. He always seems very comfortable in his skin. And I think he has a lot going for him in this part. He has the size He has the physicality and he brings the whole action hero thing into play clearly. Right. And I think he's also down to do a lot of shit. I think he's just, he's committed, but I think there's also something that just is a happy accident. And I don't want to say, because I don't really know whether he was cast for this purpose, but the Austrian accent and the stilted acting really does play into the fact that this is a robot underneath. It just works really, really well. And they do a little more levity and a little more humor now. They have the, the benefit of being able to do that now with the character because he's a good guy. And you could do – he could bring a little more to the table as this character is supposed to be becoming – he's discovering a little more humanity. He's understanding a little bit more about humanity and acting like a human himself. So he'll have the thing where John leaves him hanging with the high five, and he'll just deadpan, and it's hilarious because he's a robot, and you don't know if he's just being even keeled or if he's actually upset. You know, you have to kind of read into it because he's very—he's of one emotion for the entire thing. He doesn't get too high or too low. A smile is rare. Him getting upset is non-existent. He just kind of stays even keeled, like a robot. So he, you, so but he could do the thing where. Maybe it's his timing more than the acting. He just kind of gets it. I think it's Arnold really getting this character and knowing that, you know, this franchise really kind of rests on his shoulders. And it's just a really enjoyable performance to watch. I mean, I really love Arnold in this film from front to back. He just he just really brings it and it really works. And like you say, it's not his inherent acting ability. This isn't Marlon Brando. You know what I mean? Let's be honest. This isn't Al Pacino. It's not Robert De Niro. So, but he just you love has, your Italian
1: actors. The, you rattled off I know. Wow. Well, hey, all, that, the, yeah. all, the, all the greats. Yeah. All yeah, the of greats. Of course. Of course. Of course.
2: Um, but, you know, he does have that thing where you can't even- By the time this movie ends and you're two movies deep into the franchise now, you can't even imagine another actor playing this. Even a contemporary like a Sly Stallone, another action hero, a Bruce Willis. Who else would fit into that camp- uh, Mel Gibson, anybody mm-hmm. that could really do that has the acting chops as well. I don't think it would be half as good. I think it has to be
1: Arnold. Sure. I agree. And uh, yeah, I I, I he it, <laughs> it, it's just impossible to imagine it without him. So it is what it is. But I think in a good way. Absolutely. We, but we have to talk about Linda Hamilton, too, of course, give her her props. Clark Petrie wrote in and said, Moriarty net. Broadly speaking, do you have a favorite sequence in this movie? Mine is Sarah's escape attempt from the mental hospital, primarily because of Linda Hamilton's performance. However great she was in the original, she brings next level excellence to T2 in this sequence in particular. The fear she displays when Arnold steps out of the elevator is chilling. This is an all-time favorite movie of mine and I anxiously await this episode. Thank you for being a bright spot in my week. Let's talk oh, about Linda Hamilton. Nice. We can talk about our other favorite scenes too, but she is great. She really is great in this. She is. And I don't know what it is about James Cameron, not necessarily only creating, but of course, more like an alien's harnessing the power of a female action lead. I just think it works. I think there's some funniness here. She's supposed to be 29. I think Micah was saying she's actually younger than that. Uh, in the this actress. film? Yeah. Wow. Like she was 27 when she filmed it. I'm like, man, it's Holy just... Holy shit. And I feel bad saying this shit all the time. I just think women in particular looked so different back then by design. Like, but they were trying to look older. It's just so funny to me. They don't, the age doesn't track because we're always, on the show, we're always bouncing back and forth, like you said, between eras. Yeah. And women just start looking younger and younger and younger from there. Absolutely, dude. So it's so funny. She's supposed to be like in her late 20s. She has, which, which is, I don't know how that really works because I guess that would... She would have had the kid maybe when she was 17 or something, 18. I don't know. I don't know. I really understand. How old is worked.
2: John supposed to be in this? Film? I don't
1: know. I mean, I I would assume he was like 14 or something like that. Yeah, I would but think they, so. They think they say 29 years old in the um okay in the synopsis. I could be wrong. Okay. I'll look it up when I when I throw it over to you. But um, she's, she's great. Not only I, I love just all the gunplay with her, how comfortable she is around it. I also love, although we don't really see it, this idea that she was fomenting all of the skill these skills and the story with her son, which is what is so fundamentally cool about the movie. I don't think as cool as Skynet is and the Hunter Killers and and Cyberdyne and all this kind of shit. What's actually the coolest part is that, in my opinion of the story and the idea is this idea that this kid is being told that he is the savior of humanity and he really doesn't know if anyone's telling him the truth or not. It sounds insane. But that's good shit. And I think she does a nice job of really living for him and acting for him and being single-minded. And I love the little scenes of her being duplicitous with getting out of her, out of her handcuffs and kind of attacking everyone, getting the, the Drano or whatever the hell it was in the, in the needle. It was cool. Like I I dig her. What do you think of Linda Hamilton in T2?
2: Yeah, she really goes for it in this, right? I mean, she's one of the, I would say two really great actors, maybe the best actor in the film. And, She really, she really is great. I mean, she does, this is a character who has the weight of the world on her shoulders, right? She's carrying this knowledge of the world ending and she's really the only one that knows it and she's trying to get everyone to believe her and she's years away from this happening now and it's critical and she carries that PTSD that PTSD and the trauma and she's really kind of a shell of herself and uh she's she's disturbed i mean she's psychologically in distress and she really she really does like embody that in the film there's that one scene in the mental institution where she's being i guess you know, she's, she's in the questioning room and she, she's kind of explaining herself and she kind of goes crazy and says, this is happening and you're all dead. You're already dead. And it's really a chilling performance. It really goes up your spine. It's like, wow, she's really, you really buy it. And then I think, unfortunately, for the Linda Hamilton character, there's, for Sarah Connor, there's some cheese in the movie too that she's beholden to hold up. Like very heavy handed stuff with the playground and the kids and the nuclear blast. And it, get, it crosses over into that James Cameron cheese a little bit where it's she, and she has to hold that up too. And she has to play it. And I think she's a good actor put in a weird situation. So in other words, sometimes it's bone chilling and the performances mm-hmm. really gets under your skin and it's effective. And sometimes it's just melodramatic and, and sort of crosses over into camp. But it doesn't. It regardless, the performance is still there. Those scenes aren't her fault. Fault. She's just kind of charged with having to do those things. And then, of course, as you say, Kyle, like the action, the gun wielding. I know she went through a lot of training with how to handle the guns. You can tell. Training. Right. Yeah, it's it's really, she's really, really good at it. I mean, there's yeah. that one scene. The athleticism is really apparent. And, you know, She's very fit. There's that one scene where she beats the crap out of the guard and grabs his nightstick And she's like in jogging pants and bare feet and she just kind of starts running. And it's like, it's like a gal. It's like a gallop. Like, like, oh shit, I wouldn't want to be in her way right now. Like she's been in this little eight by 10 cell, but she still could, she's been training. She's doing her pull-ups and stuff. That athleticism is really, really cool. And you could tell she really got in shape for the film. I mean, that was probably a significant amount of training to tone and be able to move that way. And she, I mean, it's like Catwoman-esque.
1: Yeah, I totally really, know. I cool. know the exact scene you're talking about. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. Shit out of the guy, <laughs> yeah.
2: it's just it's just really really great, and you know, great blocking and staging. Shout out to the, um, you know, all the stuff that they did for making those those scenes look real.
1: We have to talk about John Connor, of course, as well. <laughs> Danny Kellerman wrote in, gave us a way to maybe talk about this a little bit. Said, hey, lads, hope you're both doing well with Terminator 2 being one of, if not the most beloved action film of all time. I was wondering what your thoughts were on the thought on the father son relationship between John and the T-800. It's a film me and my brother. I'm sorry, my father bonded on quite a bit when he showed me the film at a very young age. So I'll always cherish the film for providing me that. It is interesting to watch um, Edward Furlong be introduced as this kind of badass character and then quickly almost beholden in a father-son like dynamic to this T eight hundred. And it suggests what I it what I said earlier, I think is really true about the story that it could have used so much more space to explore all of this stuff. Cause it would have been it would have been more interesting, I think, that way. But I have to say, I, I'd find Furlong's performance annoying and mm. I think he kind of kills the movie the movie's vibe for me in some scenes. He's very I wrote in my notes, he's very girlish. And I don't mean that in an insult, he's just he is, is is He's kind of in that. We're, all right. Every boy that grew up during the landline era knows exactly what I'm going to talk about, which is that there comes a time when you're answering the phone and people think you're a woman, right? You're like 10, 11, 12, 13. Sure. i like, oh, hey, Allie. Hey, Dana. Hey, and I'm like, no, it's Colin. <laughs> you know, but I sound like a, I sound like a girl and you get used to it, right? It's a great he's, boy. He's in that space in this movie, and it kind of kills it for me. You know, I I because like you want to assume John Connor, whilst young and innocent, is clearly not quite innocent. We see him hacking into an ATM and riding a motorcycle or dirt bike and doing all sorts of shit. I just feel like he's a little, I don't know, his his acting's a little little girlish and a little kind of it's kind of um precious in a way. And and I don't, I think one of the weirdest scenes that really makes me not like his character at all and his performance is when. He's yelling and screaming and saying, like, really, you know, get get off me and get this guy away from me in the in the parking lot. Those guys come over to help him. And then he watches the Terminators beat the shit out of them and almost kill one of them. <laughs> and they're like they're like total victims. They're probably the biggest <laughs> victims in the entire movie. Trying to help him. Yeah, it's so fucked up. And then I'm like, fuck this. I it was fucked up character. I don't know. I'm not crazy about Edward Furlong in this movie. John Connor it kind of annoys me. What, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I hear you on that, man. And it's so it's so funny. It seemed like I was listening to the same thing over and over again and just watching reviews and stuff of the film where they sort of praised the performance and I'm like, "What are you guys seeing that I'm not seeing here?" Yeah, I don't see that. Also very interesting, a little later on, I remember Edward Furlong being, I know he's been in a bunch of things. But I I remember him being really good in American History X. I believe he plays Edward Norton's Little brother and white supremacist. Yes. Yeah, he does. He is. Film. He is good at that, and I he's really good in that. Yeah. But in this film, it's interesting. I really watch it because I heard so many people saying, "Oh, he's wonderful," and you know, it sort of, sort of seemed like a DiCaprio esque level of accolades that he was getting for doing this. And I know, in just listening to interviews and stuff, that they cast a really wide net to create this role to 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 cast this role and they got him i think at some rec center or ymca or something in southern california they found him there so it wasn't anybody that I, I think had any acting chops yeah because they say they
1: introducing right it, it does
2: yeah this so this is his first big gig which is which doesn't necessarily mean anything but i thought that was interesting that they really they really worked and, and really committed themselves to finding somebody that they thought would be great for this role. And I think it's interesting because you have this young kid, he's thrust into this situation and sometimes it plays off the, maybe the lack of acting chops. So it kind of plays into the naive nature, right? The innocence, the childlike wonder. And sometimes it's even cute when he's teaching the Terminator, the lingo and stuff like that. But A lot of the times in the scenarios, it just smacks of bad acting. So it doesn't, you know, he's kind of batting 150 or something. You know, sometimes it's effective, but most of the time he's striking out. And, you know, I guess he would grow as an actor. I haven't seen too many of his movies, but again, American History X, I remember him being very good in that. But yeah, he's not, he brings you out of the movie, sometimes i mean he's supposed to be this young punk i know he's a young he's a young kid and sometimes it works sometimes that innocent comes to the forefront but for the most part it's you could just think of like wow they couldn't they couldn't cast someone better than this especially to play opposite you know linda linda hamilton who's really bringing it
1: Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah, I agree. I agree with generally with your thoughts. I just uh, that is interesting. I haven't watched any reviews. I was trying to kind of avoid them until after we recorded. And it's interesting to hear that people were praising him because I would agree with you. I I feel like he's the weak link, if anything, in a small cast of characters, maybe six or seven characters. I feel like he's definitely the weak link. I do want to give a shout out, though, with the Edward Furlong character in the beginning. He's accompanied by Danny Cooksey. Oh, yes. And this guy. Redheaded character is just a staple of the mid 80s, late 80s, early 90s. He really was, is. He was in Mr. Um, well, he was in different strokes and then he was in that. I was looking it up. He was in that show, The Kavanaugh's, which I barely remember. It was only on for three years. And then uh, and then, of course, I know him from Salute Your Shorts. He, That's iconic. where
2: he's from. I knew he was in a Nickelodeon show.
1: And I, I love that show. That show is so funny. The intro to that show. When they're all singing with the piano music is so funny. And he's like, I hope you never. He's like, and it makes me wanna fart. That's the character <laughs> that says that. Like, he's the actor. And then that is one of the great children shows that gets overlooked. Totally. It was only on, it's I think, for gets two, two years. It's so funny.
2: It's, I hope you never part. Now get it right or pay the price. So good. I love that opening song.
1: So he's definitely, I wanted to just give him a shout out because he's kind of just around in things that I watched as a kid.
2: Yeah. He's a kid character actor from that era. You're really right. He's You just know him. You know you've seen him on TV shows. He pops in as a guest star, pops into a feature film. He's the mullet. You got to shout out the mullet. Oh, it's his mullet. Part that, of the kit.
1: It's that hair, man. It's that it's that fire, fire red hair he's got that probably makes him so attractive as a- Such uh, a look. As like a child actor, you know, for, yes, yeah, a very specific look, like an asshole. Because that's like what he seems to play. <laughs> yeah. I would really be interested to know what I'm sure he's not like that. And I was looking him up. He seems to have gotten more into VO and all of that. He was even doing VO at the time he was doing uh, Salute Your Shorts. He was doing Tiny Toons, the original run of Tiny Toons, which is a, a show. I oh, loved wow. When I was a kid, I loved that show. Great show. Classic. All right. What else here? Let's talk about. Well, I guess we can talk a little bit. An important character for us to discuss is, of course, Robert Patrick's T-1000. We could talk about it through this question from Ruben Barrett. He says, hi, dickwads. I recently read that James Cameron said this film is more about how people dehumanize each other than the world fighting an imminent robot apocalypse. And the reason that the T-1000 is in T2 as a cop is because cops think they're better than everyone else and dehumanize people in order to do their job. And the quote, I think, and I think I saw this somewhere. It says cops think of all non-cops is less than they are stupid, weak and evil. They dehumanize the people they are sworn to protect and desensitize themselves in order to do that job, end quote. What do you guys think of this notion with all the crimes that have been committed by police and recorded within this new age of smartphones? Do you think that James Cameron was correct in this assumption? I know this is a heavily loaded, somewhat political question, but as a skateboarder myself, I'm sure Dagan has also been the recipient of this type of automatic dehumanization from cops and security guards alike. I feel like I saw that quote somewhere. I'm going to look up where I try to do it when I kick it over to you. But I'm wondering... First of all, I should say at the top, Robert Patrick's awesome in this role, although there's not a huge dynamic to the role. He does a great job in the role nonetheless. But it's more about his look that I think is actually perfect than the acting, maybe Mm. I would say. Mm -hmm. However, I wonder what you think about him being a cop and his general performance and and all the rest. I think while James Cameron might be true to some some extent. I think it's vastly overstated in my opinion. I think the cops are kind of in the United States, in my opinion, the cops are kind of in a difficult position and I think they largely do the best they can. I've known a lot of cops in my life that have been good people. So I try to give people the benefit of the doubt in that regard. However, I think that in terms of storytelling and in terms of the plot, it just makes a lot of sense because he has the trust of society and utilizes that trust and abuses that trust. So maybe that is the well it seems like according to Cameron himself that that is the the intent but I like the idea of him being a cop because he can he has cops in society have a sort of leverage over everyone else you kind of trust them like if a cop came to your house and and you would and it was like you know there's a issue with something you probably would believe them right I mean so I like that I dig that and I dig how they use a lot of the cinematography and I especially when um the foster mom is talking on the phone and she gets and she like goes off screen and gets like killed by him or whatever. Yeah. I love there's a lot of really cool stuff that makes him very ominous as well. So anyway, talk to me about your thoughts on the T-1000, Robert Patrick, and the idea of him being a cop. And if it's important, this humanization and all of that to then this desensitization the that seems to make sense. With this character.
2: Yeah. I didn't really realize the cop thing kind of played into the message, but it does make sense. You have a a lot of very overt messages in this film that James Cameron and, and company wanted to definitely impart. So it does make sense. I mean, first of all, let's talk about Robert Patrick. He's a really interesting actor because I know he's been around for a long time, done lots of film and television. I only ever really know him besides this iconic role of much later on being in The Sopranos. You know, he plays Davies Scatino, which is Tony's childhood friend that now owns the sporting supply company. He's a gambling junkie. So I really only know Robert Patrick from these two roles, and he's very good in The Sopranos, by the way. It's a small turn, three or four episodes, I think. Mm -hmm. But does a great job. What I love about the T-1000 and Robert Robert Patrick's portrayal is that you have this enemy... This imposing doom, right? He's small in stature, especially compared to Arnold. Think about that. But still, super menacing. That glare, that run. You don't want this guy chasing you. He's a proper scary villain and he's just kind of like a runaway locomotive. Like nothing's going to stop him. You know, he's this liquid metal, just demon just coming to get you and there's nothing you could do to stop him, especially knowing that Arnold's an older model, you always have that kind of, that worry and that sort of anxiety of like, is Arnold going to be enough to stop this thing, this monster? And again, in this small package, small, but super threatening package, the cop thing is interesting. And, you know, I have, uh, yes, I've had a long time skateboarder and other things I've had run in with cops. This is the way I break down the whole police thing. First of all, this movie, I have to say, it's really interesting in 1991. Now we're having this discussion in 2022. It is interesting that a lot of these sort of pinpoints or bullet points, or I should say messages in this film that this film seems to be trying to get across seem pretty timely for the last few years, especially in the United States with everything going on. But I break down police like I do everything any kind of people, any kind of profession there's good and bad in, in 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 the police force and in plumbing and in carpentry and in graphic design and in mail carrying there's good and bad and I have certainly run across police that were corrupt that were bad at their jobs that were bad people that straight up some of them shouldn't have been cops uh, you know I'll say that I was also raised. Partially raised by one of the finest police officers, finest slash people, and my friend PJ's father that could have ever existed, who was a New York City detective, eventually a New York City inspector. And he was one of the best, most genuine, kind-hearted, wonderful people, you know, people in the world. I mean, he was one. So there's good and bad in everything. And I think you have to take that tempered approach to life. You know, it sounds maybe a little too Peace or something, I don't know, or diplomatic, but that's really the way I see things. And, but, you know, everybody has something to say and I don't have anything wrong with putting, you know, I don't see anything wrong with putting messages into your
1: fictional content, be it a book,
2: movie, TV show, a painting, whatever you're going to do.
1: I think it's vital. But- you have to uh, have it. In my and, opinion, it's, I, I don't know why you wouldn't want that as just a patina. Like, you don't have to read into sure. it. But it's cool for your art. It's cool for your art to be created by motivated people, isn't it? It's like Absolutely. you don't just create things for no reason. That's Absolutely, stupid. dude.
2: Depth, right? And, yeah. and who knows? And, you know, I would even argue if you're creating something and you're a genuine creator and your heart's in it, the things you have to say are going to make it in anyway, intentional or not. They're gonna find their way in there. You know, who you are, how you feel, what your stance is. It's gonna it's gonna be shoehorned in, however intentional or not. So but yeah, I mean the cop the the police thing is interesting. I mean, just like the comment on America, the comment on the cold the thaw then thawing, but still existing Cold War, guns, humanity. There's a lot of I mean, the movie starts with a a smoggy gridlocked Los Angeles highway. And then sort of the rat race and the hustle and bustle of downtown Los Angeles. It looks very unpleasant. And of course the whole statement with nuclear war and the innocence of the the playground, like this is not, Mm. these are not unintentional things like young people and all the innocent life being beholden to these human adult conflicts and statements on computers. And technology. And so why not, you know, a comment also on police and and cops and just the nature of how things were looking in the early 90s. A lot of a lot of filmmakers are doing that in this period. I feel
1: like one of the interesting things that I think this film does is explores the furthering butterfly effect that could happen from messing with the past. Mm. They're very single minded in these movies about John Connor, but it starts to spread out and incorporate Miles Bennett Dyson, who I actually think is an interesting character and is apparently a very important character. I was looking him up earlier and he he has his own Wikipedia page, like the character. Oh, wow. Because it's his work in the Terminator universe that reverse engineers the remains of the Terminator from 1984, the original 1984 film to create the necessary technologies that ultimately lead to Skynet. And by the way, one of the eeriest things about this movie to me, and I don't know if you caught this, is that Skynet becomes self-aware in only 22 days. Did you did you catch that? Yes, which is that so it was like from fucking, the beginning yeah, of August to the end. Right. Right? It was like in 1997, right? Like he's put online, they call it geometric growth, and then 22 later he's self-aware. Or it's self-aware, and I I found that so deeply unsettling. I love it because we think about it happening over years and whatever. And I love this idea that they go to unplug it, which is the likely solution, or at least one of the things you would have to do. And so it launches its nukes at Russia to ensure that Russia launches nukes to the United States. (laughs) Yeah, which is so, which is so fascinating. So this all happens in a few weeks, and I love how that that breakdown just occurs out of nowhere and I, i've never seen a terminator movie after this so i don't know if they get into that at no, all, me but that's, never saw but that would be cool to to see more of that that time when the when skynet just gets out of control but it all flows through this miles bennett dyson character now i'm wondering what you think in two ways first of all his performance joe morton i think he does a really nice job but is it righteous to kill this dude kind of feels like it's the right thing for them to do right but i like how the it's really through John himself and this kind of nonviolent pacifist streak he's got going in with the T 800 that they don't want to become what they hate, I guess, but it's so simplistic when you realize that a few opportunities in the past would fix all of this. And maybe you could, they're trying to keep John Connor alive originally to kind of withstand the war. Now they're looking at the reality of averting the war from happening, but if you get that deep into it and know that these technologies exist, you can start playing around in this universe in lots of different ways and stop lots of different things from happening. And so I feel like I would be interested in the future movies to know if they put any boundaries on that because I like how they expand it to going after Dyson, but then it suggests that why don't they just do a bunch of other shit and you could solve everything, go yeah. kill this dude, kill this guy, make sure this thing happens, ensure this thing happens, blah, 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 blah. blah. So what anyway, what do you think of that character and that whole, arc, because I think it gets quite sci-fi at that point, which I really dig.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is minority report before minority report, right? I mean, this had, I like that whole minority report effect of, you know, when he says it, I think Dyson says it, he says, you're basically incriminating me for actions or crimes I haven't even committed yet.
1: Right. Exactly.
2: And how much of what I do will play into what, you know, the catalyst for all this catastrophe. And if any- or maybe everything I did, who knows? And you meet him when Sarah's going to assassinate him. And, you know, you have, so you have this character at the center of things who doesn't realize he's at the center of things before he's being, you know, before they have to kind of bring him up to speed and brief him on everything. And he's, of course, he comes away with, I feel sick. I think they could have taken that further if they wanted a, a little realism where maybe he's, throwing up or he's really sort of just thrown into a complete tizzy by the whole thing. But it kind of keeps that blockbuster tone. It kind of stays above the board in terms of like an action flick. It definitely doesn't go down into the doldrums. It maintains a certain blockbuster flavor of movie, which is fine. I like an established tone in a film. I thought the, the most interesting thing about this character, Joe Morton, just in looking him up because he's a face, you know, you see him pop up this character actor and just going back like his filmography and film and television. I mean, dating back to every, I think every single huge TV show of the seventies and eighties into the nineties. Yeah, and reading them now, it's like mission
1: impossible, Sanford and son mass. So many things, just everything. Miami vice. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, really all the big, the big TV shows, and so it was interesting to go back and see what his uh, his resume looked like. But I thought his acting choices were really interesting because he's actually shot twice, first by Sarah and then later on by the SWAT team right, at the Cyberdyne building. And he really goes for it. Like, I've never seen somebody act a gunshot wound like him. He really, it, it, it crosses over into overacting, but- it's a, spe- a really specific flavor of dealing with that thing that I've never seen before. So it makes it very interesting. It, it crosses over into funny a little bit. He, he died right before he dies because he has the trigger for the explosives. Right. So I really go back. If you could go back and watch Joe Morton's performance, it's really interesting because it really kind of smacks of, I don't know, like, a journeyman actor but this guy's been already been acting for 35 years when he did this movie or something you know so it's a really interesting choices
1: yeah he's there's a couple of things that i think are interesting with the, just him his introduction i love fake computer programs on in in movies like when they act, there's like a whole i actually someone in, i met someone that kind of it was in or is in that 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 sector of film, CG, and all of that where people create fake programs and fake things that you interact oh, with shit. and you can That's type so into. Cool. But they're just like basic interfaces and all that. And I actually just yeah. recently watched a Jurassic Park. I've been watching a lot of cool film content on YouTube lately. And there was one for Jurassic Park, and I've watched there's a lot of good shit about Jurassic Park on there. Uh, so but good. one of the guys was talking about how on the on the and I never noticed this on the computers when they're interacting like Samuel L. Jackson and um Newman, I can't think of his name right now. They're both interacting with their computers. Oh, yeah. but they're actually QuickTime videos. You can like actually see the bars on the bottom, like playing a video, which is like a very crude thing. But with this, I thought it was funny because when Dyson's interacting with his computer, he's typing away and looking around, but it's so clearly not doing anything on his computer. I'm like, what are you typing into? Like, what are you doing? But the house is so dope. That house is so 80s. Oh, it's that awesome. It's amazing. I, I just think that that in and of itself is a character.
2: Is that so cool?
1: That needs some respect. Yeah. You know,
2: what Kyle? What you say about computers is interesting too, because you could kind of get away with that T2 Jurassic Park era. Now everybody's literally your grandma's a computer expert. Your grandma's you know doing the computer. She's doing email, all this kind of stuff. You can't. Back then, you could fool people. You couldn't fool you, but you could fool a lot of people, right? But. Now you can't fool anybody with that kind of stuff. Now you have to, you better, you better make it legit. You better make it look authentic.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think the kit that he has in the movie that John has that hacks the ATM machine, I think is in and of itself, like an Amiga or something or an Atari computer of some sort. But like it's because I saw that come up recently just out of context, but you're right. It, it, that kind of stuff matters. It goes back to what I say about music videos that really bother me when it's clear that they're not, the editing is not right. So that, especially the drummer is not playing what is really being played. And that always sticks out to me. And I hate that. And you can tell when, when producers and editors and everyone understands that and gets that right. Cause that yeah. little shit does matter. Yeah, sure. Sure. So yeah, it's the little, it's the little things, but I, I dig the performance nonetheless. And I love what it just indicates about Skynet. Again, this idea that it just got out of control so quickly that it all in August, 1997 is, is when it, when it all goes to hell and judgment day happens and, and yeah. the fight begins. So I dig that we see that more out of him. But again, that draws in this idea that I I brought up several times now of just, man, I wish that there was just more of this in this time. I don't want more of it now. I don't want to watch a Terminator series now. What I'm saying is that it's too bad that we couldn't have gotten more then to really set the stage better, because as I understand it, it just kind of all goes downhill from here, although I think I think you could argue that Terminator 2 even has really no reason to to actually exist but it's a, it's a good film let's talk about some effects in the movie mm-hmm. one of the things I wrote a lot in my notes with rare exception which we'll talk about and, we'll, and someone wrote in about it is I thought the effects were really good I always marvel again at how good Jurassic Park looks still and a lot of that is is practical but a lot of it's not a lot of it is CG very sophisticated compositing and CG and, and all of the rest and Using telestrators and all sorts of shit and, and cutting things out, and it's it's annoying. And so they did a really good job, and I think this movie holds up pretty well. But Serge wrote in and said, "Hey there, future resistance brothers. T two is without reservation my favorite film of all time. So much so that I know every line by heart, and I can rewrite the script if I desired. Rather than getting lost in the weeds about big positives like the action scenes or in small details like how every arcade game John plays is military like in some nature, missile command, afterburner, etc." What I thought I'd like to do is ask about some less than desirable qualities in the film. In your episode of Terminator 1, you guys mentioned the hilarious use of a dummy in the future scene where Reese is driving the truck. I love that scene. I can still see it in my head, like the the guy just bouncing around like (laughs) so funny. In T2, James Cameron is still keen on the idea of using cheap dummies, and that's evident when the T-1000 crashes in the canals chase before the truck explodes. It really does look like a crash test dummy painted black at the moment of impact. So did you guys notice anything that looked off? None of it detracts from the amazing legacy this film has on pop culture, but even the best of us have some hiccups. So thank you, Serge, for writing in.
2: Yeah, thank you very much, sir.
1: One thing I noticed, everything looks good. I'm even impressed, by the way, just the you can tell they were totally feeling themselves with this with the reflections. Yeah, you know that they were like, yes, we can do reflections. We can reflect in the metal. We can reflect in the water. We can do all the reflections. You're going to see the reflections. I love that shit because that that adds so much processing power to what they have to do and so much time and energy but it it makes it work and you tell they want to show that off and i get it like you can see it with all the different metallic weapons and the 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 panning effects the pepsi machine and the reflection and all that's really well done however there's a shockingly bad scene that needs to be brought up and it's the scene when they're driving to i think it's they're driving away from the gas station towards the border and there's this this panning shot of them through the windshield and they're in the car and all of the rest, and it's just a horrible composite shot of them in a studio, and you can tell. And I, it makes me wonder sometimes. I know it's easier now with uh, drone shots and all the rest, but it makes you wonder, like, why didn't you just do this in the in a car? Like, I don't understand why you didn't just set cameras up, have a cameraman as the fourth person somewhere, do it a few times, so the cameraman's in the, you know, in the dr- in the passenger seat, sure, sure. In the back. Yeah, but why would you make? Why would you do something like this that looks so bad when everything in your movie it looks so good? You want to show it all off. It looks so good, and you don't do the you don't get the little things right. You're you're missing the forest for the trees. So you're you're like, yeah, the reflections right and the fucking knife stabbed through the woman's head, but you're not like <clears throat> focused on the two and a half or three minutes spent in this car where it's clearly it looks like Seinfeld level, you know, green screening. It really does. So for all the good stuff, I mean, there's countless good looking shit. I mean, we can go on and on. I think it looks awesome. But that stuck out to me as something that was bad. What sticks out to you as good or bad?
2: Yeah, I mean, that looks like an old film, right? It looks like, yeah, the rear projection. There's supposed to be no headlights. So I don't know if they thought they could get away with it because it was darker. But that's a great call out, Kyle. There's only one. There's one specific spot that stood out for me. I think it's the, going into the last battle with Arnold on top of the sliding liquid nitrogen truck, and it's headed to crash into the foundry, the steel foundry at the end. And I think it's Arnold just rolling off the truck and then onto the platform of the foundry or the smelting area or whatever, and it's just sped up. And it looks like a black projectile launching from the truck. And then it just cuts to Arnold or the stuntman. I guess it really would be rolling. But the whole thing is sped up. So it looks like the frame rate automatically just jumped from 24 frames a second to 70. (laughs) And even though it's probably only a second long scene, it's really jarring. But for the most part, man, first of all, I have to call out Missile Command in 1991. I mean, if I saw that in my local arcade, I would. Uh, They also have Space Invaders in there. It's like we're one of the first arcade machines. And I think it's supposed to be.
1: Is it? Is it? I'm trying. I'm kind of confused. Is it 1991 there too? Or is it not further into the future? That's what I was curious about. Because that could be even worse than what you're saying. It could be worse. Yeah. But it couldn't be yet
2: 1997. right? Right. Right, so I, I I take it it was present day. He had the pu- he had the public enemy shirt on, right? There were a lot of contemporary. Seemed like the. Oh, it's 1995.
1: Model. It's 1995.
2: Oh, it's 95. So they're only two years away. Right. Yep. That is interesting to set a movie four years into the future.
1: Yeah, so you'd see like you really Street Fighter see. machines and Mortal Kombat machines and all that. It's a little it's a little weird, but that, oh, that's- so
2: that it does you're you're right though. It makes it a little more egregious, right? Right. But the right. technology, man, I have to say, hmm. like. They do such a good job. I love the fact, this era, we always say this about 80s and 90s films, but I love the mashing up of the practical Stan Winston effects with the computer ILM. Dennis Murin supervised computer effects. Silicon graphics was a big thing back then. But I think this movie, it holds up really well. I totally agree with you. But I think it benefits a little bit from just being lucky because you're dealing with primarily the effects of this liquid metal man. So you're dealing with this molten metal that's amorphic and organic and could turn from liquid to solid and all these things. You could do it much better now in 2022, but that stuff could only look so good. So it looks very polished. So maybe now you could do better texturing and you can make it a little more organic and have a little more dripping and all that kind of thing. But the reflections and the cast shadows, and the texture mapping and the 3D scanning, which is was kind of a precursor to mocap. Right, you could th- you could 3D scan but a single thing, and then you had to animate it in the computer. But you had the ro- you had the authentic rotation, then you had to animate it. So it was kind of the precursor to the ping pong balls, where you could actually just animate it in real space and not have to go in a two step process. But I think it really it's it's a am- I was really. Expecting to go in and and be really critical of how, you know, like, wow, this is really like, I wasn't even in art school yet. Like that level of computer animation. And it really holds up. And they were really dutiful and, and mindful of those cast shadows and the reflections and having that CG exist in real space. So it seemed really tactile and it seemed really tied into the actual environments. So, I mean, only Industrial Lights and Magic could have really done that at that time. And it also occurred to me, dude, nineteen ninety-one, four years, a good four years before even Toy Story came out. So you're really looking at, and of course, you know, Jurassic Park. So all of these things, that time period, really pivotal for for the art form and for you know the cinematic nature of what the computer would be able to do. And cutting edge shit. Like really, really amazing how well it holds up, you know, so many years on.
1: I agree. I love that shot when he gets shot in the head and it's like off screen and then it kind of goes on screen and you see him and you can see through it and it's really wonderfully done and perfectly edited. So there's no edges and yeah, you really put a lot of work into it and good shit. Yeah, I think it looks good. I mean, that would be trivial today, but but that kind of stuff then was yeah, it was it was something else. So yeah, the, the whole climax at the smelting steel mill, whatever it's it's super cool. Uh, I I dig that whole scene. I love the 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 march through the liquid nitrogen and how he's getting colder and colder. And it's so cold. It's like you hear the crunching, but then he pulls his legs apart and then he falls and he plays so good. It's very neat. Very, good very shit. cool. And you could tell that they had these ideas like this. This how would it work with liquid nitrogen? How can we get that in there? And how can we have this this thing? And of course, it had to end at like the perfect place, the only place where you can imagine him being actually destroyed. So that was kind of ironic. But but nonetheless, good shit. I want to ask you and go back to a question I asked earlier, which is, um, is Terminator 1 actually the better movie? Awesome 055 wrote in and said, Hi, DNC. I rewatched Terminator no. 1 and 2 recently and found myself enjoying T1 more. The performances are more consistent and it is a grittier film. T2 has better effects, but it dra- is dragged down by Edward Furlong's performance as John Connor. I know he was a kid, but it ruined the movie for me. What are your thoughts on his performance? We already talked about that. Uh, and he wants to know otherwise what we think about which movie is better, T1 or T2. I'm curious, Dave, which one do you like? I mean, uh, all told, I think they're both good or both great. It's really how I feel about Alien and Aliens. I do think Alien is the better movie, but I think that they're different movies. This is definitely much Mm. more of a popcorn film. Yeah. The thing that I think T2 suffers from, in addition to Edward Furlong's performance, is it's pretty high concept. You really have to think about the movie. Like, it's a pretty high concept movie. It deals with a lot of time paradoxes and things that, could happen and couldn't happen in multiple timelines and technologies, and it's interesting to package all of that into this. I, I almost—I guess what I mean is I, you can almost imagine that whole concept being taken and it is a totally different film, like a totally different movie than this. And I don't know, it's heady, but it—it's it, 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 heady like Blade Runner's heady in some way for me, but it, it's not Blade Runner at all, right? It's—it's—it's it's, it's a $500 million grossing action yeah. movie. So what what do you think? Which one stands up to you more? Are you kind of indifferent to the, the comparisons between them? Because they are different films.
2: They are. It's a hard choice. I mean, they are very different. They really do feel like Alien and Aliens. They give you two different things. One's more of a, One's more of a horror film. You're being pursued by one bad guy. And the other one is sort of the the next version or the second iteration is what the first one could become with a bigger budget and a slightly different idea and a bigger scope, and just pushing out the boundaries a little bit and making it a little more little more action and a little bit, just a bit just showing the, the entire world that universe on a on a grander scale. I think the Terminator the first Terminator film is just a wonderful movie. I think front to back it just really really holds up. I think Terminator 2 I really enjoyed a lot, but I think it drags a little bit. I think it's a little over long, which is an interesting thing to say because it's a movie packed with action, set piece battles, and the entire thing is a chase. So there's a lot of excitement. But I don't know if it's those little moments at the mental health, you know, the the mental health facility or that place just north of the Mexican border where they're kind of shacking up and getting their supplies together, or holing up in the garage after the battle with the T-1000. I don't know if it slows down a little too much, um, or the whole bit that happens at Dyson's house later on. So I'm not really sure what it is, but there is something to T2 that makes it feel like it's chugging in places a little bit which is really interesting cuz it's an iconic action blockbuster popcorn film. But that would be the only thing I that I could say negative about T2. I do love how different they are. And again, I love how Arnold they found a way to make Arnold the good guy even though the explanation and the exposition isn't dramatic or, you know, maybe they maybe they just kind of make it happen without enough explanation, but I still like the dynamic of changing it up like that and just doing a 180 and saying, okay, let's, let's try this. And rather than returning to the well of, okay, the bad guy's back and he's going to get us again, that that was clever.
1: I I don't quite understand the fandom about Terminator from here, because if it's true that it goes down in quality so much, then you're really looking at a couple of films as your source material and everything else trying to kind of replicate it. And I know that, james cameron's not involved in these new movies but uh, it does make me kind of interested to go and see them i remember the the i feel like i might have seen terminator 3 maybe because i remember the the female terminator in that one the blonde yes
2: there is a female terminator in
1: that but i don't know i don't even i don't even know that i care enough to do it but i but i agree i don't mind the sequel being so different we embrace that a lot in games that during that period too as we often said and it's it's cool to try something different i think that's totally fine I don't know that the, the result was even necessitated. Like it would have been so interesting if Terminator was just left alone. I know no one can leave anything alone, but I'm one to rewrite and try to rework things that probably don't need to be re- rewritten and reworked. And clearly people really dig Terminator and Terminator 2. It is one of the most well-regarded action and sci-fi movies ever. But Hell I yeah. wanted to ask you about this because this always reminds me of a specific person. So I wanted to shout him out. Tom Brown wrote in and said, Hello to brothers Moriarty, probably like many others. This is in my top five movies of all time. My wow. question to you both. Does the T100's uh, lava the thumbs up elicit a sad or humorous reaction from you? For some reason, it really gets me right in the feels. But upon watching it with a partner, she outright laughed. We'll have to cancel the wedding. Stay well, guys. Thank you, Tom, for writing in. <laughs> so that scene will always remind me of Nick Scarpino, who I used to work with at ijan and kind of funny because we used to make fun of that all the time like the the hand going down and like the the thumb like forming as it's going down we used to, we just thought that that was there were certain things he and i thought were really comical we used to think hunt for red october was a really funny movie too and oh my god and uh so i have to give a shout so out to him because that definitely that thumbs up thing definitely reminds me of him but it is such an iconic thing what do you think about that in the emotion of their relationship and the humanization of Terminator and him having to kind of sacrifice himself like he has to go. He has yeah. to by by nature. Was it sad for you to see uh Uncle Bob take up take a fall? <laughs> That's right, Uncle Bob.
2: Yeah, that I mean I love the part where he says he has to sort of, you know, he can't kill himself, so they have to kill him to get rid of the chip, but why couldn't they just take the chip out of his head? Hmm. Right? Then
1: maybe it was Arnold- a central process, or maybe he just wouldn't work without it or something. You know, yeah, they didn't have plus- a sufficient a sufficient. uh I mean, it, it is interesting to think that it, it, they would have had to selfishly keep him around and keep him protected, knowing that the same result can come from the same technology that's within him. That's the irony mm. of it, I guess.
2: That's a good point, too. That's a good point. I, I like the ending where he has to kind of commit himself to the molten steel at the foundry or whatever. But the thumbs up moment is weird because it really took me aback when I first saw it. I had to kind of rewind and be like, is that a thing? And then it does seem like silly enough to be a humorous touch, but the movie doesn't really evoke that tone in any other moment. So I know that it was, or I ascertain that it was supposed to be serious. And I don't know what else they could have done there. Right. He had to show that his humanity, we know that the T-800 couldn't cry. We know Arnold couldn't cry. We know he could say his repeat uh John's one-liners and say why, like but- <laughs> why do you <laughs> cry? Why do you cry?
1: I don't even know if that's what he says. He says something like that.
2: Why do you what it, no, he really he literally does, right? Ooh. When they're under the car. That's what he like turns to him and asks was his like his wrench and he's
1: like, Why do you cry?
2: That was that that was the best thing. Can you imagine that takes <laughs> Jesus Sorry, Christ. Very one note. Yeah. <laughs> But the thumbs up moment is definitely one of those choices where I could see, but you know what though? I could say being a kid like around John's age, maybe you're 11, 12, 13, watching the film for the first time, maybe, you know, because you're evoking that whole father figure thing. He's forming a relationship with this kid. This kid's been in and out of foster homes. He's had these, you know, father figures that were disposable and- here one day and gone the next so i don't well, know well they just I disposed of another
1: imagine. kid's dad right in front of him, basically yeah we know the kid's a twins fan he's gonna have a hard enough life as it is <laughs> dig is there anything else you want to say about terminator 2 judgment day from july 1991
2: you know what we should just shout out the music oh of course which you know i have to say man like we're really weren't it's really not that much different than the first ones. Music. You have the icon, the return of the iconic theme song. Brad Fidel scoring the film. You have some great intermittent music. You have a, a theme song for the T one thousand, which was really cool. But I gotta say, the most memorable thing going in and then coming away was the Guns and Roses song. You could be mine. I mean that that was like I. Th- now let me ask you this. Did that song exist prior to the film and then they kind of leveraged it for the movie or was no, that, that film was that movie you know song created that track created for the film?
1: I thought that song was on Use Your Illusion 2. Oh. So it but, had existed already. Yeah, I think so.
2: And I they just so. used they what just, just kind of bought
1: the bought the Let's rights see here. from Use Your Illusion 2. Axel and Company. Yeah. Let me see.
2: I mean, yeah, yeah, you could be mine
1: is track 12 on Use Your Illusion. Use Your Illusion 2. And that came out. Well, actually, it came out September 17th, 1991. So I guess it was kind of a teaser for the record.
2: Oh, so it was a promotional thing.
1: Yeah, I guess so. For Slash and the band. So that's pretty cool. Kind of, you know, probably a classic marketing deal wherein they don't have to pay for a really overly expensive music video. The music video promotes the song. The song promotes the movie. Very classic 1991 move. No doubt about it. You don't see anything like that anymore. It's just not necessary. By the way, Terminator I 2. Really don't. What was the budget? Let me see. Yeah, $100 million. So it's not like a, I mean, that's a big budget movie then, but that's not that much. I mean, what, six years later, Cameron would spend twice as much on, on Titanic. And then uh, the movie wow. made more than $500 million. So
2: that's unbelievable. Not, not too to shabby. No wonder of. he doesn't make
1: many movies. I mean, I wouldn't either. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't need to yeah i wouldn't either i love that kind of shit because you, you have brought up um what, what's the licorice pizza guy paul jones An-
2: paul thomas Anderson. paul
1: thomas anderson yeah yeah he um he's the same way he doesn't do anything and i think that that kind of is cool it's like yeah dude do, do, be very deliberate
2: absolutely You deliberate could, if body. you could wait wait and you know who knows maybe that's cultivating inspiration maybe that's how long it takes to put something together or really kind of get your vision down on paper but you know, it it is interesting because you do wonder, I mean, after Titanic, can you imagine making that much money? I mean, after Titanic, why do anything? Then he hatched the whole Avatar thing. Then after that, you're like, all right, he made, I mean, lifetimes worth of millions of billions of dollars. Why do anything? Now oh, yeah. he's launching a whole Avatar franchise. So it I almost credit these guys just for creating after all that, because there's zero hunger i mean I this agree. I agree. creativity is not born out of wanting anything
1: i can't imagine what that what much money would do to me I, I it in some sense i think it would probably embolden me because you can take which i think is what's happening with avatar what george Lucas yeah. did with star wars et cetera, where it's like i'll take the risks myself i'll pay for this shit myself i don't need to answer to anyone that probably helps a lot if you're in that sort of position and of course, you get the famous George Lucas, you know, sometimes like the video of him Dustin always likes to use it, where it's like I might have gone too far in a couple of places, which is like <laughs> one of the fucking best clips ever. <laughs> but generally speaking, I think you're right. If I were, I don't know if I would want to put my money where my mouth is and deal with it all again. So I think that there is a creative energy, even though these guys have generational wealths, magnitudes of wealth. It's not like it's unearned. I think it's fucking awesome. People make all this money on entertainment it's cool that you people make money on necessities and sure. ideas and all this kind of shit that, but that we live in a society where people can be rewarded very handsomely for creation. That's a pretty new thing. That's really only. I don't know, realistically speaking, a couple hundred years old. I mean, you had patrons yeah. of artists and painters, but the reason that they these schools of art exist and they're kind of defined is because you know everyone that was doing this art at that time. And we got to the point hundreds of years later where you couldn't possibly track that because art was viable. And, um, in some weird way podcasting is a is a recipient of that that for situation as well so
2: yeah man we need distraction um, if this hey if this world stays this crazy or gets even crazier we're going to need distractions of all sorts podcasts films books entertainment of all video games of all sorts well, we're, we're going to just- need it <laughs>
1: Well, Dave, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you all out there for your love, kindness and support. We appreciate you. We end every episode of knockback with a dad joke. And so I hand it off to you like quarterback to running back.
2: Oh, nice. We, well, you may regret sticking around for this one. Okay, Kyle, how do you fix a broken pumpkin? Oh, I don't know. With a pumpkin patch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's pretty nice. Good. That's pretty good.
2: You could I like the ones that are perfectly acceptable for first grade classrooms.
1: Yeah, that's you know? good. Why yeah, can't why can't we have some G, vanilla humor every, every now and again? Yeah. <laughs> that was good. I liked that one, actually. That was pretty nice. I would have nice. never guessed that. I haven't gotten one in a long time. I think I've I gotten thought you might get that one. Life. I'll be honest. Don't give me too much credit. I mean, it's a real <laughs> it's a low it's a low percentage opportunity, low roll.
2: That's fair. That's fair.
1: All right, my friend. Well, thank you. And thank you all out there again. Remember to support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash for early ad free access. That's where you submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas as well. Your topic ideas. We have some of your topic voting winners coming very shortly. Oh, yes. We need to get through that list. So uh, we'll see you next time. Until then. Goodbye. Oh, I'm sorry. Hasta la vista. <laughs> Can you not do it? Chill
2: out, dickwad.
1: <laughs> there we go. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. Casual Misfits Gaming, Stephen Nieder, Ross Maranka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLV FMA, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Malachi Wall, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vader, Stephen Interfield, Lord Starscream, Jacob Dunnivan, Eduardo Perez, Salty Trees, My Name is Mayo, Logan Byford, GJ, Eddie Medina, Jason R. Zahn, Christopher Knox, Zeno Adam, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Nuclear Prostate, Sort of Serious Gaming, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parix, Henry Groth, Relentless Rex, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Graham Plays, Christian R., Jad Reed, Benjamin Mumma, Patrick Skipper, Brian Hernandez, Espinosa, Chris Kelly, Remington Wilson, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Jalapeno, Josh Allen, rui Michael Buffel, Dan Root, Asak Parides, Talisman, Christopher Morgan, Randall Halsey, Robbie Nauman, William Holbert, Josh Godfrey, A. Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, h Tronz, JT, Antonio C, Jay Getter, Assassinated Devil, Bjorn Campbell, Andrew Morgan, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Jordan Gale, Love Fortuna, John Zeal, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadeth, Poot, Gavin Newland, Alex LaPierre, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolt, Matt Flowers Kennums Joseph Baker Bustard Rodney Coleman Cruxes Chris Moore Caswell Antti Kinnanen Chris Dave Alvarez Will Hernandez Chris Galvin Justin Gonzalez Mason Cadillac Ollie Fritz Zach Alum, Kyle Hagel Colin Love Daryl E. Naaman Ryan R. Kittredge Toby Ryland Michael S. David Bostick Stewie 108 Patrick Montgomery Simon Dunbar D.B. Cooper Fat Houdini Richter 86 Ian Bravo Barrett Boswell Christopher Devayo Chris Morton Johnny Waffles Roto 24 Jonathan Coates Sean Mason Josh Gravelick Jordan Town Brian Chan Organic Produce Carlos Algorit Dominic Mike Menzel, Richard Hebert III, Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Andrzech, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lewin Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Tom Quinn, Anton Kay, Alan Trembly Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zuniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kinniston, The Rose Experience, and Grizzled Veterans Media, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Jorge Powell, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw7, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gage, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Joey Gonthaler, Gerald Pennington, Justin Payne, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Andrew Keith A. Lewis, Ashley Carlson, Marius Carson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Purdue, Patrick Carper,
0: MadMock Media, and Jonathan Rice. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work
2: stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment
1: you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate.
0: But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time